Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today I sit down with Quinn O'Brien. Quinn is the CMO at Carnegie Learning, an ed tech leader that is shaping the future of learning through AI. And our conversation was fantastic because Quinn's experience is so unique. He tells stories of starting in a very humble role of a receptionist at a marketing agency and how that perspective brought him into the brand side, ultimately how he expanded at amazing brands like Lenovo, where he spent a large part of his career, but also how he started up a company, what he learned in terms of liking of stages and not liking about stages. And that takes him to Carnegie Learning, where he is the CMO of a fast-growing 500 person plus company. Now, the second half of our topic is even better today. We go in to talk about the importance of segmentation. I was actually interested when I called Quinn because he's been looking at our company, Uberflip. How do they go after so many different markets? They've got you know different subjects that they help with. They've got different grade levels that they help with. And he layered on so many other elements of segmentation and talked about this idea of really trying to solve for problems and that you need to segment not by your buyers, but by their actual problems. This is a great episode. Get ready to tune in. Quinn, welcome to the podcast. I am pumped to have you here. Your journey is unique because I often like to ask a marketer, how did you get started in marketing? And very few will ever answer as a receptionist. So, (laughs) you know, usually it's like, oh, I wanted to be a CMO. So I started in demand or I started in brand. But in your case, you were answering phones. Yeah. No, it's still, I I say a lot of times, like still one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. I didn't, I didn't actually even think I wanted to get into marketing. I wanted to get into law. Um, And you know, through a series of twists and turns, ended up at an ad agency, didn't even really know what that was, but got the receptionist gig. And it was awesome. I mean, it was, you, you felt like the most important person in the place because you, and this was back in the day where it really was about answering calls, transferring calls, FedEx, greeting guests. Like I was just busy and it was, it was straight out of college and there was a buzz and it just felt it felt like kind of a mini Mad Men world that I was in. And so it got me very quickly hooked on the world of advertising, even though I was sort of looking at it down the hall and sending people down into the world of advertising. It was a, it was a great start. That's really interesting. And, and, and it's, it's so true. I mean, being in those types of roles, you get to see how the business operates, what hallway you maybe want to continue down. So let's, let's go down that, which is, Did that role or that organization that you found yourself in turn you into more of a brand marketer? I think in a lot of ways it probably did. It was a it was a startup agency. So when I kind of as I said, when I got off the desk, when I graduated into the the actual agency itself, there were about there were about ten people there, and there was no formal organization. It really was we had one client, and whatever the client needed, we did. And so you know, I did. I did client service, I did strategy, I did, I wrote copy, I did production, I did everything that the agency 
needed done. And it was it was sort of a next person up like, all right, now we got to do this. Quinn, all right, you go do that. So it gave me a really diverse view of, of how an agency works. And it, it taught me the value of process too and like organization that we didn't have. But it also just let me see what I was good at, what I wasn't good at. And it gave me a sense of kind of the path, the journey I wanted to go on as I as I progressed. So we're going to fast forward for our listeners here to modern day, where you're now the CMO of Carnegie Learning. And, and I want you to fill in the gap, though, before we talk about Carnegie and what this role is. How did you go from this agency world into a more SaaS offering? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was probably three steps, three big steps. I, I, I went from the startup agency into the big agency world. So went to, to work for agencies like Arnold and Ogilvy and McCann. And so really started to work on much bigger clients, uh, worked on IBM for a long time. And so really grew up, scaled up, came to see how business worked, how marketing related to business and started to just get a much bigger, more strategic picture of things, always from the agency side. And then made a really big step to go client side and did that. I went over to Lenovo. It was actually a, a client of mine when I was on the agency side for years and went over there to be initially their head of brand globally. And so that move from the agency world where I had a lot of scale and scope within the agency, but I really only had a narrow view into our client to the other side of the fence where you're suddenly on the client side. And you have more context, more perspective, more authority than you ever realized you could. And it goes from how do you manage clients to how do you make decisions and and really focus your team um, and did that for about nine years. And then the, the final step, which was about six months ago, was going from the, the massive world of Lenovo, which is a $70 billion company across 180 markets, to Carnegie Learning. Uh, so moving from the tech space to the education space, moving from that big of a company to one that's 500 people and relatively small number of products compared to, to Lenovo. So it's been a really, there's, there's major reasons behind each move, but those have been kind of the big things that if I, if I look back, if I'm giving people advice coming out of college, I talk a lot about those three steps in the decision-making process and how and why I went from each one. So I'm, I'm curious, as, as you tell that story, I think a lot of people listening and a lot of people who would look at your resume would probably label you as this brand marketer. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people who want to make that jump to a CMO, whether they've taken an agency side path like yourself, or they've grown up in B2B or B2C yeah. more on the brand side, jumping to CMO how did you overcome even pitching yourself to the CEO of Carnegie Learning yeah. that you could handle the breadth of the needs? I, I think the, well, a couple of things. It's funny to be, and I think you're right, but it's funny to be seen as a brand marketer because the vast majority of my career was in uh, indirect. It was, it was, it started out very traditionally in direct mail, went to very digital account-based marketing, CRM, like I did the full gamut of it and then arrived at Lenovo into the brand role and kind of did a lot there. So I've, I've seen both sides of the fence. I think the conversation with the CEO of Carnegie was really interesting because he was looking at it and he's, he's 
brilliant in how he sort of looks ahead to the vision of the business. He was looking, saying, all right, we're a 500 person company. We want to be significantly larger than that. I'm looking for someone who understands what big looks like and understands how to scale and has seen, really seen marketing and business at its extreme. Uh, big, massive, multi-billion dollar public company across many markets and has done marketing at, at that scale. And so he was interested, I think, in me because I, in his view, I could help take marketing at Carnegie from small, smart group of people to scaled up organization. I was looking at, at him and the company going, I've done the big company thing and both on the agency side and the client side. And I don't, I'm not having as much of an impact as I want to, as many hours as I work in the day, I want to, I want to actually see the impact of those hours. So I want to go much smaller. I want to get down into it where I can actually start to see the impact of, of the decisions I make, of the thinking I do, of the, the, you know, if I'm leading a team, I want to, I want that team to have an impact and see the impact of their decisions. So he wanted someone who could scale up big. I wanted to go small and it, it just, it was sort of fate at that point, I think coming together. So. Very interesting. So the, the other part that I find interesting, and, and you you described the move to Lenovo tied to the experience you had with IBM, uh, yeah. or that's the link that I'm making when you say a previous client. I could have easily seen you leaving Lenovo and going to a startup in you know the device space of some sort. Yeah. You made a jump into a world that you know to me seems a challenge and really complex and a lot of competitors in terms of like, K to 12 learning, yeah. how did you pick that space? Uh, and, and how do you come into a space like that and ramp yourself up quickly? I, I chose education. Um, I say I chose it. I mean, it was a mutual, like they had to pick me as well, but um, for, <laughs> for completely non-marketing reasons. So my wife's a teacher. Uh, she teaches kids with special needs. And I was, I sort of had a millennial moment in the midst of the pandemic where I was looking at it going, I, I just need to do, I, I need to do something more with my life and my job and everything like that. And I want to get into something outside of the, the hardware space is intellectually intriguing, but it's not soul satisfying at all. I mean, you're not really changing the world with hardware. So I focused on education because I've spent so much time talking to my wife about the challenges she's facing in the school system in America and all of these, all the dynamics that are going on in education. And I looked at it and said, I know a little bit about it. I know enough from talking to her, from working in the education space in Lenovo. And I want to try to see if I can go in there. Because if I could go in and help a company to make a difference in K-12 education in the U.S., that would be satisfying. That would feel like you know, in some ways I'm having an impact on, on my family, but I'm also just, there's a very clear problem out there, the communities I live in, and I could go and help with that. So it, it was a moment where I was sitting on a call late, late, late at night uh, at Lenovo. And I just said, you know what, this is, I've got to do something that, that is more soul fulfilling than what I'm doing right now. So, so I, I, I picked education. I went after it. I, I believe the universe acts in a, in these things sometimes because you know I, I went online i looked for jobs and the first one i saw was an education company and it's where i ended up so i, I feel like it was meant to be i, I didn't want to go to a startup i had started up a company of my own and um didn't like that experience like that is like i'm good in the scale up i'm not good in the startup 
So that's, I was, that's good self-recognition. And yeah, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of what you're describing is chasing passion and, and, you know, finding something as you called it, that's going to fill your soul. And, uh, it sounds like you found it. We're going to go a lot deeper into what the go-to-market looks like at Carnegie Learning, but we'll take a quick break here on The Marketer's Journey. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. In the last number of years, we've seen things like the great resignation, or we've just seen people jump for that next great opportunity. And in many cases, I look at those jumps and I question people's decision. Was that the best opportunity? Did you need to jump for that? In contrast, you look at Quinn's decision to make moves in his career, and they all lead to a big jump, something that's clearly a change in his trajectory for becoming today a CMO. You look at most recently him describing making that jump to fulfill his soul and do something that he could connect with, not just take the CMO title, but an area that he had passion for, that his wife had passion for, that they talk about at home. I think that's what more of us need to do because often you can have a great run like he did at Lenovo for over eight years without having to make jumps, but take on more, take on new challenges. When you do make a change, Make sure it's a change and it's a leap forward in your career. So Quinn, I've got three kids. They are 15, 13, and 11 almost. And I can tell you, they're all at different schools this year. They're all learning different things. Even just all the systems I got to log into, I feel like I need a degree. Uh, to know how to how to use them. But I assume that means that different learning, different needs. How do you think about the different breadth of segmentation that you need to conquer? It's a, that's a really good question. I, it's funny you talk about the systems. We did, a, I read a study the other day that the average teacher in the U.S. through the course of the school year interacts with 148 different ed tech products, which is just, wow. and these are not, generally not people who are trained in technology at all and they're they're touching that many products so it's a it's a challenging world but i, I think the it's when i look back at lenovo lenovo like i said before i mean we were we were across hundreds of markets around the world and i really thought that was the most complex segmentation i was going to have to deal with because you're dealing very much with a cultural segmentation you're looking and going okay i need to build a brand i need to deliver marketing and campaigns that either resonate equally around the world or are that segmented to work to work in China, then to work in Russia, then to work in Brazil, then to work in the US. And so it was a this, this segmentation, really understanding your audience and being able to, to divide your audience up was an incredibly complicated 
effort there. And so I came into Carnegie initially naively thinking, oh, this will be easier. It's right. you know, it's two markets, U.S. and Canada, and it's one industry. Um, and at Lenovo, I was focused on eight different industries across all those markets. So I thought, okay, I got this. Like this is this is doable. And then you start to dig into the education market, and you start to to understand. I won't go into, into too much depth, but you start to see that there are administrators in the districts of each school district. There are the administrators in each building. So there's the principals and assistant principals. There are the teachers in the classroom. There are the students. There are the parents. There are the government officials. There are the the councils out there. So it just and each of them. Each of them has a really distinct set of needs, and those needs have been completely upended with COVID and are now starting to resettle back down, but in a very different way than they were three years ago. So, so mapping all of the different customer segments, understanding their pain points, and, and in a lot of ways, they're linked together. I mean, if you look at a, the administrator in a school district, someone who's sitting centrally looking over, over all the schools in their district, their biggest worry right now is teacher retention. What they care most about is keeping really highly qualified teachers in the classroom. If you look at teachers, a lot of times it's incredible that teachers are in the classroom because there's so much adversity in there for them. I mean, they've gone through the whole COVID virtual Absolutely. learning process. They're, yeah. they're not as well paid as they should be. The environment a lot of times isn't favorable. The parents don't always look favorably on the teachers. I, it, it, the number of, of ed tech products, I, it's just, it's a really, really challenging environment for anybody and for someone who is really there to to really focus on the kids and try to, to bring up these kids. It, it's, it's truly challenging. So from a segmentation perspective, you can map the segments, but really understanding the pain points and really getting into then how you value the individual segments um, is really complicated. So we we look a lot at, you know, we've got very key decision makers and buyers um, in the administrators. We've got very strong voices coming out of the classrooms from both teachers and students that influence those administrators. So you've got to you've got to manage that whole complicated world, and you've got to do it. For an audience who a lot of times is exhausted at the end of the day, they don't they don't pay attention online that much during the day because their heads down doing their thing. They come home at the end of the day, they're exhausted, and the last thing they want to do is be marketed to. So it's a it's a really, I, like I said, I underestimated it coming in, and I now have deep appreciation from a purely a marketing perspective for how complicated the K-12 market is in the U.S. Well, you know what? I, I feel like I underestimated this topic myself. I told you I'd love to talk about this because I was on your website and I just looked at it from a solution perspective where you had different subjects, grade levels, and then resource types. And without taking people through those, there was three different subjects, four grade levels, a couple of different types of resources. And I just did the math and I'm like, all right, that's 24 segments. But you just yeah. layered in so many more variables around, you know, who's making the decision? Is it the teacher? Is it the school as a whole? Or is it the government? And every state buys differently. Some buy as a state, some buy at the district level. The It's sort of multidimensional chess when you start to go in and go, um, how do we do this? And, and building a marketing department to to service that and to work with sales and to work with product effectively to deliver 
on all those is um, it's a real challenge. So how do you guide your team or how would you guide other marketing teams? Like I, I like the language you used ironically at Lenovo that it was all culture based in terms of yeah. segmentation. And, you know, when you describe trying to solve problems, I feel like that's getting more into the culture sometimes than than the actual solutions or the products that we want to segment by. But as you deal with a much smaller marketing team as well at Carnegie, I'm going to assume, what are your top areas to focus on for segmentation? Is this a yeah. role-based? Is it a problem-based? It's very much problem-based. I think the we move very, very quickly as a company just because the sector we're in, the pace, the size we are. So there's very little time to think. And a lot of times we've tended to default to selling what we've got. So if we've got a product, uh, it's like if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We sell a product to people and push it on them and say, this is the solution for your problems. The, the role I've got really is continually pulling back a little bit on that and saying, let's make sure we understand the problem. Let's make sure we understand what success looks like. And it's those two things that you, you can lose sometimes as you rush to the solution. So our segmentation is really problem-based. It's really about how do we isolate what is the biggest challenge a teacher is facing? Because we've, we've mapped it out and there's 12 challenges that a teacher faces every day in their classroom. And we can't go and solve all those challenges. So how do we get to the one that is, and I always keep saying like, it's not about, sales will come. Like if we solve those teachers' problems, we will sell products to them and, and to their districts and we'll be a success. So don't, don't go into the segmentation, don't go into the marketing brief thinking about how do we go sell more of X product to this person? Go into it really manically focused on what is the one thing that will change their ability to help kids learn? And if we can do that, then they will buy our stuff. And so it's a lot of what I try to bring to my team is, is that perspective. It's building a safe space where, because it's very hard in a, in a mid-sized company that's moving this fast to say, all right, let's slow it down and let, let's just take a pause. Let's take a step back. That's, that's not in line with let's charge forward and, and go, go, go. But I want to create a safe space where the marketing team can take that step back and go, hang on, let's just be absolutely clear. What problem are we trying to solve? What does success look like here? Because if we get that right, and if we do that for each of the different segments that we're marketing to, then ultimately, A, we'll be much faster to market because we're going to have a lot less rework and it'll be much more effective once we get in there. Interesting. So. A lot of this segmentation work, I'm going to assume, is done by yourself, but as well, product marketing. Where does the content team come into play? Is that identifying these 12 problems or solving for them? No. So I've got, I've got four teams under me. So we've divided into four teams. I've got product marketing, content, um, communications, and events. And it's really the product marketers who define the problem and create those segmentations. So they're looking at they're looking at our world through the vertical, through the, the vertical lens. When we talk about verticals, it's math, literacy, world languages. So they're saying, okay, within the world of math, within the world of 612 math, what, what is the teacher's greatest need? Um, and then how do we build a communications program around that? And then they're briefing the content team to say, okay, these are the these are the set of deliverables that we need. And there, there's a there's a, a massive integration between the two because content understands what's worked in the past and what might work in the future. 
and product marketing really understands the customer and the product and that fit. So there, the product marketers are really set in the brief and content is fulfilling on that. Interesting. Interesting. What is, what has been maybe the biggest challenge for you to perhaps change the narrative, change the segmentation based on your observations? And as you said, slowing the team down is not an option. I mean, you got to keep, right. you know, we feel like we got to keep pumping out. So how have you, you know, what's been that obstacle and how have you overcome it with the team? The, the biggest obstacle has been messaging. Uh, this is one of the, the few brands and companies I've worked on where the products, if, if we can just get the message out, we will sell them. The, the efficacy of these products is just unmatched. And I've worked on products in the past that haven't had that where You've been taking a product and going, all right, how do we spin this so it looks like it's right. really good? This I'm looking at going, how do we just clear the way and make sure the message is really clear because the thing is working. I mean, if you if a kid spends 40 hours with it, they're going to get up to two years of, of gains from it. And that's exactly what teachers need, parents need. Everyone wants the kids to catch up, and these products help the kids to catch up. And so it's it's literally a lot of my focus is – how do we, for each of our products, working with product marketing, how do we get that message incredibly sharp, incredibly clear, and then working with content, how do we make sure that comes across and doesn't get lost in all the speeds and feeds, features and benefits, all of that stuff. It's like, hang on, this works. Like we want that to come across. And if that comes across, then we can get into how it works, why it works, all this sort of stuff. But we got to start with Give us 40 hours and we'll give you two years back in terms of learning game. And I feel like if we're, I always challenge my team to say like, don't, don't think about it as, all right, we're creating a multi-touch email campaign or anything like that. Think about you sitting across from a customer or a prospect. What would you say to them? What's the one thing that you would say to them to hook them and get them to want to learn more and want to talk more? And if we can get it down to that, then then we can be really innovative in content because then it's about, all right, how do we go tell, how do we go get that point across in the most entertaining, engaging, interesting way? But if we don't have the point, then we could spend all the time creating TikTok um, characters and campaigns and videos. But if we don't know what th that thing is, then we're not going to actually be able to do it. Also spend a lot of time on the MarTech side at looking at the kind of the back end of things going, a, obviously, how do we measure if it was successful? But B, how do we start to refine that segmentation? So it's not the softer, like, what's the problem we're trying to solve? But really then the the kind of the grading of these prospects and starting to understand who is most likely to respond to our pitch around that problem. Some great tips there. Quinn, we're going to keep you around. We're going to take a, another quick break here, though, on the marketer's journey. And we'll be back with some personal questions about your career. As we dig into segmentation, I'm reminded of a stat from my friend Jen Allen, who works at Challenger. She's the chief evangelist there. And she shared with me the realization of how many people we're trying to target in a sales cycle. Now, back in 2015, that number was 5.4. And I remember that being scary then. And then it kind of inched up to 6.8. And we were like, oh my gosh, it's bigger. But nowadays, at 2020, they said that that number is over 11 people. In fact, 11.2 people weighing in. So when you hear Quinn talk about the importance of segmentation, it's not just 
problems. It's the different buyers and making sure as he talks about the need of attracting a government decision maker versus the teacher. We need to have all these different buyers in mind as we go through the cycle. Because the reality of what Janet shared with me as well is that the more people at the table, the less likely someone is to take action. When you have one person at the table, 80% chance that they're gonna take action. When you increase that to over six, the chances of action drop down to under 33%. Under a third of people are going to make a move. And that's why we have to cater our marketing, our messaging, and our content to all buyers at all times when we think about segmentation. We're back here on the marketer's journey with Quinn. Quinn, unpacking your CMO journey is unique, starting as a receptionist, becoming a CMO. Not everyone gets to take that path. Now we're going to combine part of those answers, part of the segmentation talk, and we are going to hit you with some rapid fire. My first question for you is thinking about that next CMO. It could be someone on your team, someone you've worked with, someone just listening to this podcast. What path is best for them? Should they go really deep in an area of marketing or more of a generalist approach? If they're starting out, I would go generalist. I think one of the challenges a lot of people face coming out of college is they feel a lot of pressure to to pick a path and be right about that path. And I don't think you can. I think you should you should go in somewhere, get context, and then pick. I like that. I like that. I'm, I'm hearing that more and more these days. And as people want to move their careers, I think we have to definitely embrace that as a reality. So in the, in the last part of our chat, you hit on segmentation. I love that question you said to ask, which is, what is the one thing we'd want to tell that prospect? When you think about content and the trickle down from there, what what is it about content that resonates for you? What gets you to click when it's in your inbox? Oh, it's interesting. So it it doesn't. Like that's not to me the thing about the most compelling content is what gets me to tell someone else about a product or a service. The 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 brands I love most are the ones where I hear about it from people I trust. And so my holy grail is to figure out what is the content that actually drives that kind of word of mouth buzz. And so I'm not actually feeling like I'm seeing content. I'm feeling like I'm hearing about it from other people. I, that's interesting. You know, that, that weaves to my next question so smoothly because I, I think a lot of us are obsessed with personalized content and there's nothing more personalized than the pitch that a peer right. or a colleague is going to tell you about a product. But what other elements of personalization do you think are important today in marketing? You know, what I, I think the ability to really accurately reflect the personal experience you've had with a product in that next piece of communications or content. Like the, I'm no longer impressed just by something that has my name that recognizes who I am. I want them really to have an insight into what my experience has been like with the product and to market to me based on that. Absolutely. It sounds back to your, your earlier point in our discussion. It's, it's all about knowing those problems and being right. able to solve for them. All right. This takes me to my last, maybe, maybe toughest question of the day, which is when we talk about journeys, the last one we think about is our own. Uh, how do you make time? I'm seeing in the background of, you know, I believe you're working from home, a bunch of board games, Taboo yeah. and, and other fun ones. How do you make time to disconnect and just have a good time? Uh, I mean, one, one thing, and it's, it's so important, it's such a good question, though. one thing is to actually disconnect. So I've, been, I've become really purposeful about just shutting down. Like 
you know, leaving the, I, I work in the basement. I leave the phone in the basement when I go upstairs at the end of the day. Um, and I try not to, not to even see it or be near it until I come back down the next morning, which is hard. But so that physical disconnect from the work world and just from social media and technology in general, I think is really important. And then I spend a lot of time exercising and nothing specific, but just anything that kind of gets me to that point where I'm out of my own head. Like I'm not in that, all right, obsessive boxed in, you know, thinking about all the stuff I got to do, but instead I just go somewhere really different. And I've found that that working out, exercising helps me to do that. So I try to make space for that every day. I love those, those two tips. I mean, especially leaving the phone in the basement, that is, that is commitment and that is tough. I can't even sometimes keep it in my bathroom. <laughs> it's really hard to do because <laughs> it's just like little things where you want to, you want to check the score of the game. You want to, you want to catch up on the news. You want to see if anyone, if your friend texted you, like all that stuff can't happen. And there's that, the FOMO kicks in and it's just, uh, so I'm not, I'm not batting a thousand on that one, but it's a, it's an eternal quest to keep it in the basement. Yeah, def- definitely to your point when playoffs of whatever sport you follow yeah. come into play, that's, that's going to be super hard or you're going to be asking Google for uh, an update every moment. Well, and that's the, that's the challenge is we've got, we've got a Google and an Alexa upstairs. So I can still get the answers to the stupid questions that I want to know the answer to, but, uh, as long as it doesn't start reading me my email, I think I'm good. Yeah. Listen, it's just a matter of time until our text messages are coming on on our TV screen. So, Absolutely. you know, maybe maybe that'll save you and also bury you. Quinn, this has been such a pleasure. It's been so great to have you on to get the perspective of a CMO, how you got there, how you manage, how you think others should. I thank you for sharing. If you're tuning in for the first time hearing Quinn, check out all the other amazing episodes we have. This is our eighth season. We have seven seasons. Every CMO's journey is different. One day, maybe you'll be on here telling yours. I can't wait. Until then, thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.